0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between. And we love hearing your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll take a few of them, take many of them if possible, and turn them into stories right here on the show, and put them up on the satellite so you can hear them too. Also, to hear all of our material and our best each week, our five best stories each week. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org and send the link to friends. What we're doing here is special. I think you know it. Share it with friends and anywhere you can, talk up what we're doing. We appreciate it, and so too does your station. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, some of you don't know, but whose life and whose voice you're certain to be captivated by.
1: While watching a movie with my wife in the family room one evening, we were interrupted by our 16-year-old son, Tommy, who walked in and sat down with us. Politely, he said he had something important he wanted to discuss with us. As I turned off the TV, I quickly imagined all the possibilities of something terrible, disastrous, or difficult that could force a 16-year-old boy to sit down to talk with his parents about anything important. My wife, with her eyes wide open, sat silently while we all got settled in to hear what he had to say. I could not remember his approaching us like this before, and my expectations, coupled with my imagination, made me feel very uncomfortable. He began to tell us about a friend whose cousin attended the New Mexico Military Institute in Roswell, New Mexico for high school. That cousin is now a captain in the Green Berets and is teaching math at West Point. Tommy was very impressed by that and said he wanted to go there for the remaining two years of high school. He talked about the academic standing of the school, the numerous activities that were available, and the challenges he felt the school would present him. As he spoke, I was still unprepared for the ending of his story. Calmly, and ever so smoothly, he discussed his desire to attend such a school and pursue a college education that, no doubt, had a military career as its ultimate destination. His mother countered with a gentle return to reason when she said, "'You're going to a fine private high school here in the Bay Area. Why would you want to leave all of your friends?' More straightforward questions came from me like, are you unhappy or do you want drugs? He said he was prepared to leave his friends as he would make new ones at the school. And though it was a military school, he was not enlisting and would still be a high school student. He returned to talking about the courses and activities offered by the school and its academic reputation. He thought the discipline and focus would help him be more successful. It was obvious he had done his homework and it was evidence of how seriously he took this idea of leaving home, traveling and living at the school, and taking on a rigorous academic and physical regimen at 16 years of age. Young though he may be, he had reached a fork in the road in his life that his mother and myself didn't see. We asked, why would he want to be going to a military institute that sat out in the middle of the New Mexican desert? It was their reputation, he said. In their one-year cadet prep program, 97% go on to one of the military academies. Out of a total of 900 students, 90 went on to the military academies. He thought that by doing well at NMI, he could pick any college he wanted to attend and after graduation from college, become an officer. I began to suspect that he was bored living under the shady trees amidst a wealthy suburb south of San Francisco. A bedroom community offers little excitement. Punching a time clock, working at a retail store, or hanging around with your friends, playing with your phone while living at home is a lot less adventurous and exciting than traveling around the different places, living within a community where 30% of the student body is international. 100% our former military, and meeting the many challenges that the military presents. We reminded him that home and community are important for his development. They are nourishing, sustaining, and necessary foundations for his life. But, like bread, they can often become stale. It wasn't love or nourishment that was missing. He just needed more room to grow. Finally, I just had to get to the point. I asked him, what's this all about? I said, i got no problem with the military, but why not do ROTC in college? If you want to go in the military, why do you need to go down there and do this? There was a moment of silence and a calm, self-assured demeanor. He looked at me, and without any doubt or hesitancy in his voice, he said, Dad, I am not going to go to Stanford Business School, and I am not going to go to Harvard, and I am not going to spend the rest of my life working in an office. I want to be a captain in the Green Berets. I was speechless. There was nothing more I could say. And at that point, I was done. I was sold. He said he wanted to be an officer in the Green Berets, work in special operations, and be fluent in Arabic. He wanted to be a leader and not a follower. He had heard from his friend's cousin that these men don't need to find themselves. They do that every time they're standing in the doorway, getting ready to jump out of a plane. I asked him, Are you prepared to jump out of a perfectly good airplane over Nigeria?" His response was a simple yes. I could see the look in his eyes were infused with his youthful imagination and romanticism. But I knew he meant it. I understood how he felt, and though I thought it was a little early, I reminded myself that after all, it's just high school. He's not going off to war. I knew too that regardless of how far down this path he goes, he will benefit from making this decision and will learn a lot about himself in the process. This was his decision. He looked into his own insipid life and realized that he needed to find a different path to take him to a different place. He didn't know where that place was located, but his imagination convinced him that it existed. He just had to find it. And
0: when we come back, more of this terrific story from Bob McClellan. By the way, go to the McClellan Files at ouramericannetwork.org and you can hear all that Bob does. What a terrific storyteller. And by the way, if you have a storyteller in your town that you know can just, well, hop out stories, send his or her information to us at ouramericannetwork.org because we know there are great storytellers all over this great country. More of the McClellan Files This is Our American Stories, and we pick up where we last left off with the McClellan Files, a young man, a boy, having a dream in his head, a vision in his head of leading a team overseas in the Green Beret, and making that next important move to go to military school. Let's pick up where we last left off.
1: As a parent, I learned eventually I could not really direct my children's lives anymore. Oh yeah, I could influence or coerce them but I was no longer the director. In this conversation with him that night, I realized I'd become a spectator. I always believed as a father that the best I could do was to prepare my children to set their direction in life and be ready to live with the success or failure of their choices. Now, I would have to honor that belief. Consequences exist in the world of adults while children are protected from them. Families, like ours, create barriers and boundaries and walls, trying to keep out the grimmer and grimier aspects of society. But to do that, we risk becoming imprisoned inside the walls, holding on to the illusion that we are safe and in control. We sent our children to private schools, put alarm systems in our house, and were careful about who we invited into our home. But still, we know that no one is safe. We pick their friends, pick their school, and where they can go, But at some point, we can no longer be there to make their decisions or supervise every activity, place, or person that comes into their life. The point has to come where either I release him, or he just jerks his hand out of mine. Troubles like drugs, teen suicides, mental illness, or just being lost living at home with mom and dad have permeated through the porous walls of his school. He sees some of his peers already making these dangers a lifestyle and it is one of the reasons why he wants to leave. These dangers may be hidden among the many tomorrows of his future. It was becoming apparent to me that Tommy is not just running to someplace, but running away from someplace. I thought my wife and I would make all of his decisions, but at some point I know we won't be there to help him. To manage these serious difficulties he needs many attributes to get him through and resourcefulness sits at the top of that list resourcefulness is an attribute that is part of the military bedrock planning for the unexpected adapting to fluid situations and working with limited resources are integral parts of military training our natural instinct at home is to nurture our children it is our duty as parents but being nurturing is not preparing them to be self-sufficient and independent. Eventually, the breast runs dry and is incapable of providing nourishment for a man. The appetite becomes too large when your son is six feet tall and shaving. Without realizing it, Tommy's decision is one that will help him develop the ability to take care of himself. Wow, what a concept. Choosing for oneself which side of the wall is right for you is a decision we all have to make. Tommy chose the risk of being on the outside rather than being inside in the safety of the center. His confidence impressed me as evidence of both his desire for independence and self-reliance. Regardless of the outcome, this is his choice. If he gets down there and doesn't like taking seven classes a day and training in 100-degree heat in the desert, then that's just too bad as far as I'm concerned. I am sure this experience will teach him to be very selective about what he chooses to do in the future. He will certainly learn his limitations down there as well as his capabilities. Video games and drugs and alcohol hold no allure or excitement for him. At NMI, he is not allowed to even have a smartphone and internet access is controlled by the school. He leaves all those attachments and appendages here at home. There is no use for them at the school. They will write letters instead and carry a flip phone. The school seems to have a policy that I embrace. Less is more. I told him that the door only swings one way here, and than leave or come home on vacations, don't come back until you finish. He said, no problem, Dad. I told all my children when they turned 18, three doors will appear in their life. The door to college, the door to the military, in the front door, and they're going to go out of one of those three doors, for sure. And Tommy, he's the last to go. Afterwards my wife discussed the conversation with me, and she asked what I thought was driving his decision. My answer to her question was that he was bored. A high school campus full of kids that all grew up together becomes a very small world. Church for teenagers every Sunday, boy, that gets routine real fast. Faith eventually fades away. Teachers telling him all day what he's to believe doesn't challenge him to think for himself. He doesn't learn to solve real problems, but rather digital or paper ones. In the novel All Quiet in the Western Front, Paul Bomber exclaims to his former teacher after returning home on leave from the front lines in World War I, you never taught us anything really useful like how to light a match in the wind or make a fire out of wet wood. Sometimes it is the practical and not the theoretical education that is important. He wants to take classes to fly a plane, experience scuba diving, and rappel out of a helicopter. Run an obstacle course and learn about teamwork from teachers who spent many years in the military. He's not interested in being a digital cartoon characterization action figure. He wants to be a real one. He wants to be a Green Beret no less. Those ideas and dreams lie far out in the future. Though they may never materialize, I am comforted that he has some starting point in his life. These are questions his mother and I have discussed with him since that night. The questions that he could not provide answers for, he told us he would find them when he gets there. It was so apparent to me that my son was becoming someone else. I could see his hunger for adventure and challenge was contained in my most favorite quote of all of literature Shakespeare's play The Taming of the Shrew It introduces the hero Petruchio who while riding in Padua is greeted by a friend from his hometown who asks Oh, hail Petruchio what winds blow thee to Padua he answers Such winds that scatter young men through the world to seek their fortune farther from home where small experience grows. These are the words that help me understand my son's decision. I worry about his mother and how she's feeling about the prospect of her son leaving home at 16. She was unprepared and not happy about a separation so soon from Tommy. Our other son Bobby had left for college a year earlier And she thought she would have Tommy for two more years. The idea of spending 20 years as a mother and then watching them leave home is a painful experience for any mom. But his desire was so credible and so sincere that she could only say yes. She said she could not be so selfish as to stand in the way of her son seeking to make his life matter at 16. She always said that she put her children first. Her commitment to that devotion puts her into the selfless position that how her children feel is more important than how she feels. So she is preparing herself for what will be one of the most difficult sacrifices she can make for her children. What a fine example of love that is. For me, I grew up in and served in the military as did most of my family. And though I will miss them, I accept the idea that life is a journey through a strange land and each obstacle that's overcome Becomes a transition to the next place in life. This challenge will expand the margins of Tommy's life and test his capabilities. When we finally informed Tommy that he'd been accepted and that he could go, I had a sense that I would see a lot of Roswell, New Mexico over the next couple of years. I think my wife will insist upon it.
0: And what a terrific story, and as always, beautifully told and written. By Bob McClellan, go to the McClellan Files at Our American Network to hear all of his work. And by the way, again, if you know a storyteller in your town, in your city, in your community, and you know who they are, there are a few people who can just really write and tell a story. Send their names to us here at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, thanks to our proud sponsors of the show, Pillow. And that's MyPillow.com to order their terrific pillows. And there's a 10-year warranty on these pillows. They're guaranteed not to go flat. They're 100% machine washable and dryable. And best of all, they're made right here in the United States in Minnesota. The founder, Mike Lindell, well, he's committed to having their operations in our country and in his hometown of Chaska, Minnesota. And by the way, my wife and I use them faithfully and fight over which is which. We often get confused and end up, well, just having arguments over who was whom. And now I'm actually, we got names on them. So that can't happen anymore. Hopefully. We'll see. That's MyPillow.com, MyPillow.com. And mention the word stories or pull the stories word down in the menu bar. This is Our American Stories, The McFarlane Files. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of every kind here on the show, and sometimes they're upbeat and often redemptive, and sometimes they're tough. And the story you're about to hear contains some adult subject matter that might not be appropriate for younger listeners, and I'd ask you to be the judge when I give a disclaimer like that. We don't do it often. Um, But Jennifer Christie was raped on a business trip and soon found out that she was pregnant. What her and her husband did next well it was truly incredible this is her story
2: I think that things were pretty much pretty much status quo you would consider us an average family we had four kids felt like I was kind of at the top of my game as an interpreter I was taking on taking on more work and, and traveling I had interpreted a few cruises which was really cool I thought and I was getting to kind of see the world a little bit there and um, taking some some out of town work and and still for the most part being able to be home you know in time for in time to meet the school bus when my kids got home so it was sort of the best of both worlds. In uh, January of 2014, I uh, took a two week two week assignment out of town, and the last day that I was there, I finished up my job and I went back to the hotel and uh, it, was, it was snowy. I wasn't really paying attention that day. I made it to my room and you know, opened the door and dropped all my stuff inside and turned around to close the door and there was a man in the doorway. And I remember just kind of being startled, just surprised to see someone there, but I wasn't scared at first. I, he seemed very young college age maybe, like a couple years older than my, my oldest, there was nothing that looked wrong. There was nothing that would make you look at him and think that he was capable of evil. You know, it's not, it's not something that, that's recognizable. And before I could even process what someone might have been doing in my doorway, um, he hit me in the head with a closed fist and things went kind of fuzzy. And he dragged him back into the room, and he raped me. Um, it was I've been asked a lot how you know, how long were you in the room and I have no idea, minutes, hours, days. Um, I broke a couple of ribs and some fingers trying to fight until uh, I recognized that fighting was making it worse and disappeared somewhere inside myself, so my memories um, are blotchy. Thankfully, there are things that happened to me that came out in the rape kit that I have no memory of, uh, which I'm very grateful for. I uh, woke up hearing someone scream. I was in a stairwell outside of the hotel. I was wearing a broken bra and that's it, and it was below freezing temperatures, which actually probably saved my life because I had a brain bleed from the head injury. All during the rape kit, um, which is a several hour process, I thought about what I could have done differently. I thought about how this was gonna change me. I thought about how different the world seemed I wondered if people could look at me from that point on and see that that I was damaged or different I was told by the policemen who were there at the time to not expect justice I don't know that's not exactly the word that the man used but he said don't expect he said rape cases are a dime a dozen that was the quote that stuck in my head rape cases are a dime a dozen um, and I, I think that In his own way, he was trying to be kind. In his own way, he was trying to tell me to to find a way to piece it together and move on Uh, because this is not something that would likely be pursued very heavily. Life after the assault was very challenging. I did not bounce back quickly. I was not able to resume normal life the way it had been. I was having panic attacks. I felt like I was being watched everywhere, I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping. Uh, I, there was one time uh, Jeff would come up to me in the kitchen and put his arms around me just in the hug, done it a million times before, and I just folded in half and I clenched my fists and I screamed. It just took me back there. And uh, I ran to the bathroom and I slammed the door and I could hear my little boys, you know say what happened to mom what's wrong and my husband going it's okay it's all right you know I I scared her that's all I just scared her and that's sort of the way things were I was I was very jumpy and um, I just wasn't I wasn't okay I thought about hurting myself a lot I didn't know how I was going to get through the rest of my life I had an assignment at a church. Uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but there was lots of music, which I loved to do. I love to sign music and it was a it was a beautiful experience and people were coming up to me afterwards and we were really blessed by that and I was on such a high and I walked out into the parking lot and it was dark and I just felt like I was being watched. I I just felt like this man was gonna find me and attack me and I I couldn't catch my breath. I couldn't breathe. And the next thing I know, I'm running through the parking lot, I'm running through the trees, and I've got my phone and I'm talking to Jeff and I'm I am i I'm breathless and I just, You have to come get me, something's gonna happen and he's like, It's okay, breathe. I'm on my way, I'm on my way And people were like pulling over, I'm like running through the woods and running through the streets and people are pulling over and do you need us to call the police? And I just I was just pushing people away with my hands, and I remember thinking, I'm losing my mind. Like this is it. This is where where it all happens, where I just break, like at the beginning of the end. And I made it back to the church, and I walk inside, and I'm this crumpled mess, and one of the pastors comes over to me, and I just said, I'm so sorry. I was raped about a week ago, and I think I'm having a panic attack. I might be losing my mind. And uh, And I was just so embraced, and these people just sat with me and just held my hand, and waited until Jeff came to pick me up. And one of the women who was there was actually, um, actually knew of me because she worked in the organization that had sent someone to go out of town um, to be there for me when I had the rape kit done. So it was kind of an interesting twist, but I, I was not healing. I was not letting God heal me. I was I was angry and I was um, you know second guessing myself like many rape victims do. And why didn't I fight harder? And why didn't I do this? And what could I have done? And all the questions the police had asked me: Did I know him? Did I smile? Did I flirt? Did I? All these things were going in my head, and I didn't know. And um, it was not it was not it was not a good time. It was not a good time. Five weeks after the rape. I was scheduled to interpret on a cruise, and this had, been, this had been in the works for months, so it wasn't something that I could just easily back out of. There were a team of four interpreters, there was a huge group of deaf people, and I was specially requested, and I, I should have pulled out. I felt like at the time the more professional thing to do would be just to, to suck it up and do my job, and, and uh, that was the wrong, <laughs> that was the wrong decision. But that's what I did. Um, this, this shattered panic attack mess. I, I went on this cruise. Day two. I'm I'm sick, dysentery I wasn't getting better The one head doctor, she said Was there a chance you could be pregnant? And I just say, okay, look <laughs> This is probably not I, I'm almost sure I'm not But um, I, I was raped You know, last month And I you should probably just go ahead and test me
0: And you've been listening to Jennifer Christie Her story And we told you this was a tough one And we don't avoid the tough ones here on Our American Stories. We tell them all. And it's a personal subject for me. My wife had been sexually abused from the age of 13 to 16. So this story we know touches so many families. And Jennifer, well, she blamed herself. She thought about hurting herself. And here she is trying to go back to work too soon, not ready. And on top of that, an upcoming pregnancy test. When we come back, more of Jennifer Christie's story here on Our American Stories. return to our American stories and you've been hearing from Jennifer Christie and a rape experience that she had, a traumatic experience beyond all others, and how she tried to cope. Let's go back to Jennifer and her story.
2: She gives me the pregnancy test and uh, <laughs> this poor young doctor who is, is not at all, is not at all what she had signed up for, uh, she looks at it and she goes, uh, no, it's, it's, it's negative. And then she stops and she does one of these. And I was like, what? Like, I've, I've been pregnant quite a few times, what? Uh, she said, it's probably nothing. I was like, let, let me see the test. And, uh, and there was a second line. And I said, that's, that's positive. And she goes, maybe. And I said, not maybe. And she goes, we'll test again. <laughs> Every pregnant woman has said that. I'll test again, because maybe you'll get a different result then. And uh, we test again. And there's that second blue line. And I said, that's positive. And I just, I just stare at it. I feel like the world would be telling me, you're pregnant from something horrible. You should be angry and disgusted. And I felt this rush of fierce protectiveness over this baby. And I remember just putting my hands on my stomach and saying, Like I have to, I have to tell my husband, I have to tell my husband. And uh, she's like, well, you're in a lot of pain. We're going to, we're going to take you to the doctor. And we're going to make sure that everything's okay, that there's not an intestinal blockage, that there's not, it's not a tubal or, and I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait and hold off on telling Jeff until we know anything. And we made a stop in uh, Cartagena, Colombia. And I was taken to this, uh, looks like a little garage, this little hospital. This uh, beautiful, colorful little city, and I had a translator with me, who I did not need because as soon as they put that ultrasound in, there was a little little pea, and I've 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 seen those little peas before, and that little pea was my son, and I smiled, I smiled at him, and that was Valentine's Day, 2014, and I went back to the ship, and I uh, called Jeff, and I said, Are you sitting down? <laughs> And he knew that I was sick because we had been we had been emailing, but I hadn't called him. Uh, it's very pricey, and uh, he said, "What's wrong?" And I said, "I'm I'm pregnant." And there was just a, a hair of a pause, just a split second, and he said, "Okay." I said, "Okay." <laughs> you mean okay? How is this okay? Like I I'm thinking, oh my gosh, my parents are gonna freak. What are your parents gonna say? What do we tell the kids? Like. I, My mind is going all over the place. I'm like, how are you calm? And he said, he said, honey, this is something beautiful. (laughs) He said, this is a gift. He said, this is something wonderful that's come out of something so painful for us. We love babies. And I said, yeah, we love babies. And he said, this is going to be awesome. I said, okay. He said, we can do this. We can do this, Jay. We can do this. I said, yeah, we can do this. In the midst of all this chaos, there was there was always the light. There was always the baby was coming. And while we were trying to work through, what I was trying to work through the rape as a woman, and why Jeff and I were working through what it meant for us as a married couple, at the same time, we had this wonderful thing happening. That even though it was difficult, and even though it was complicated, at the end of it all, there was going to be this baby this wonderful baby, who we were all so excited and also so looking forward to meeting. And it felt very, I've said this before, it felt very, very healing having that kind of, having that kind of love, hearing so often that, you know, you're never gonna be able to forget. You're never gonna be able to forget. And no, no, I'm not, regardless of what I did from the moment I found out that I was pregnant, forgetting is never on the table. That doesn't happen, That's, it's, it's not that kind of world. Um, but as far as him being a reminder, he, he absolutely is, every day. Um, but I don't look at his sweet little face and see the face of the man who assaulted me. I don't flash back to that day. He is a reminder that I'm a survivor and he's a reminder that God is still on the throne and that good still wins out over evil and he's a reminder that on my darkest day that someone still thought that I was worthy of saving. I don't know why things happen. We can't, we can't see the whole grand scheme of everything we don't get to know the whole picture we see a piece of the puzzle and our finite minds we can't comprehend the infinite and i'm okay with that because i have this reminder of the fact that that what the enemy tried to use to kill me to bring me down to to end me in every sense of the word god used to bring light and joy and peace to my life and and healing to my family and it's really hard to have a bad day when you've got someone wrapping their arms around you telling you that they love you you know or petting your hair or meowing at you because their sister taught them to be a cat um he's just joy and light and happiness and and all the good that god is And that's what I see when I look at him. My story is not one about choice. I'm not telling my story to say, look, this is the choice that I made. I'm talking to emphasize the humanity of my son. Healing is found in that complete innocent love. Healing is found in being able to save someone when you couldn't save yourself. There was a Quote a beautiful comment from someone once where they said uh, the world is the world was telling us that we That we shouldn't love you, but in all these voices, um, you know, we loved you louder And, uh, and I and I always I tell him that when I talk him in I said we loved you louder So when he has those doubts when he finds out He'll know that we loved him louder than all the negative voices and all the voices that told us that he shouldn't be here. But there's so much more love and that's so much more powerful because Christ is so much more powerful than anything evil, so much more powerful. And the messages of love and forgiveness and, and redemption and healing so permeate our whole life in ways that we never could have imagined. So I just pray that when we do know, if he ever asks, like, why didn't you tell us, why didn't you tell me before, and we can just say, it didn't matter. It didn't matter to us. You're ours, and it's still a little piece. It's a little piece of your story. It's a little piece of, of how you came to be, but it's not who you are. Who you are is, is, is ours, and, and his, and wonderful, And we would not be the people that we are without you.
0: And what a story. And we told you it would be a tough one. But in the end, it was a beautiful one. And the incredible story of Jennifer Christie. And by the way, her husband. And imagine getting that call. Valentine's Day of 2014. Honey, are you sitting down? And then she tells her husband, Jeff, that they're pregnant. And he's fine with it. And together, they both, they'd already come to the decision. They were going to have the baby. And as Jennifer said, it's a reminder that good triumphs over evil. I don't know why things happen. And in the infinite cosmos, she admits she can only see a little bit. But this is where she relied on her faith, on her God, as did he. And we don't back away from hard stories. We also don't back away from faith stories because it animates so many American lives. And that's what we lean on to make the hard calls. Not our own judgments, but on a higher power. And lots of good people would make the other decision to just not have the baby, and it's completely understandable. And we don't do politics on this show or social issues on this show. This is a human response to an inhuman act, an act of evil. And this was, in the end, this family's way of healing. This child healed them. This child was proof of joy and light and happiness, as Jennifer said. And healing is found in being able to save someone when you can't save yourself. We loved you louder, she's gonna tell her son. When he's really ready to hear this whole story And one day he will be And my goodness, we're crying here in the studio Every single one of us And and it's a beautiful cry And I know you are too And so imagine how the son is going to respond When he hears about this kind of unconditional love Because this is unconditional love And the world needs more of it, folks Jennifer Christie's story Here on Our American Story This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the sports world to the arts world, from business, because my goodness, where will we be without inventors and innovators in American business, and straight down to faith leaders. And this is our very first story about, well, buildings and the spaces we live in and inhabit. And we bring you the story of a man who single-handedly changed the way America and the world looks at architecture.
3: Here's Jesse Edwards with the story. Most Americans are at least somewhat familiar with the architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright. Even if by some chance you don't know his name, you've seen and probably admired his work on a calendar or in a magazine. Born in 1867, he designed over a thousand structures, 532 of which were completed. Wright believed in designing structures that were in harmony with humanity and its environment, a philosophy he called organic architecture. He was recorded in 1956 at the Plaza Hotel in New York City, where he talked about his philosophies on architecture, society, culture, education, and music. He was well known for being outspoken, bombastic, a master of publicity, highly opinionated, and ruggedly individualistic. A magnificently flawed and complex character his father was a music teacher
4: and a Baptist minister my father taught me he was a preacher but he was first of all a musician and made his living or tried to teaching music later on he never was able to support us by way of it and his life was a kind of tragedy but he taught me that a symphony was an edifice of sound, and that it was built. And I learned pretty soon that it was built by the same kind of mind in much the same way that a building is built. And when that came to me, I used to sit and listen to the only master that was immaculate in in my listening was Beethoven. He was a great architect and he had a great disciple and his greatest disciple was Brahms. Brahms was a true disciple such as any uh, man could be proud to have. If I had in architecture a disciple such as Brahms was where Beethoven was concerned I should be extremely happy.
3: Frank Lloyd Wright never took on any disciples and his father left him when he was 14 years old. He attended high school in Madison, Wisconsin But there's no evidence of his graduation. He was admitted to the University of Wisconsin-Madison as a special student in 1886, but he left without a degree. In 1887, Wright went to Chicago looking for work after the Great Chicago Fire, where he was hired as a draftsman. On June 1st of 1889, Frank Lloyd Wright marries his first wife, Catherine, and by 1893, now in his mid-twenties, opens his own practice
4: and begins planning. The thing comes to life in the plan because you can't make a plan without a sense of what the plan is for. And I think a plan is always beautiful, perhaps more beautiful than anything that ever comes after it. Plan, the idea is the plan. The plan contains the idea. Now, the house is an idea, if it's a good house. And that idea embraces all that composes or will compose the uh, usefulness and beauty of that house. It's right there in the plan. By
3: 1901, Wrighthead completed about 50 projects, including many houses in Oak Park, Illinois. Four of those houses have been identified as the onset of the prairie style of architecture. Horizontal lines, flat roofs with broad overhanging eaves, Windows grouped in horizontal bands, integration with the landscape, solid construction, craftsmanship, and a discipline in the use of ornament. Frank Lloyd Wright promoted an idea of organic architecture, the primary tenet of which was that a structure should look as if it naturally grew from the site.
4: It's all a nature study, the building of a house. And when you proceed from generals to particulars, as you do when you are building, that's your natural gut. natural centerline of your effort would be the, what is the natural thing? What is the nature of your materials? Even the nature of your client? The nature of the situation on which the house is built? The nature of the climate? And I suppose it would be the same and in a great composition like Beethoven's Erwaka when he was celebrating the heroism of Napoleon. And then, toward the end of his effort, began to feel that Napoleon, after all, was dead so far as his ideal was concerned, and a great sense of tragedy overcame him, and you feel it in the music. It's a great story, a great revelation of a man's Worship and disillusionment. Frank Lloyd Wright's prairie houses
3: also featured open floor plans, a prominent central chimney, built-in stylized cabinetry, and a wide use of natural materials, especially stone and wood. He was meticulous when choosing what materials he would
4: use to build with. Well, those that are native, of course, are best, most appropriate, and the cheapest, most feasible. If there's stone in the neighborhood, we like to use stone. If there are kels and there's brick, and brick is characteristic, well, fire-built fire houses are good. and old wood is always the friend of man. Don't you feel friendly to a tree when you see one? And if you don't see one, you're hungry for association with trees. Trees and human beings belong together. I don't think one could exist without the other, perhaps. If they could, it would be the tree that would survive. (laughs) (laughs) When we return, the architecture,
3: life, and philosophy of the greatest American architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, in his own words, here on Our American Story.
0: is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of America's greatest architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, and what we try to do on this show Well, you're hearing it. Anytime we get a chance, you get to hear from the human being, the person himself, and how lucky we are to hear the voice so beautifully and clearly from Frank Lloyd Wright himself.
4: You see, early in life, I had to choose between honest arrogance and... Uh hypocritical humility. I chose honest arrogance and have seen no occasion to change.
3: After establishing a solid reputation for building houses around the turn of the century, Frank Lloyd Wright left his wife and ran off with one of his client's wives, Martha Borthwick. This was such a public spectacle at the time that the press hounded them relentlessly. He lost most of his clients and banks stopped loaning him money. To avoid scrutiny, Frank and Martha escaped to Europe. For two years, once public outcry had calmed, they returned to the United States and built Taliesin, the 600-acre estate near the village of Spring Green, Wisconsin. On August 15, 1914, while Wright was working in Chicago, a disgruntled servant set fire to the living quarters at Taliesin and murdered seven people with an axe as they fled from the burning structure. The dead included his mistress, Martha, and her two children. This marked the end of Frank Lloyd Wright's career for nearly 20 years. His first wife, Catherine, granted him a divorce in 1922 with the stipulation that Wright could not marry his latest lover, Maud Noel. They were married in 1923, but her addiction to morphine led to the failure of that marriage less than a year later. Wright would marry his third wife, Olga, in 1925. It would be another 10 years before Frank Lloyd Wright would make his triumphant comeback, As the public forgot or forgave his transgressions falling water is an extraordinary house designed in 1935 by frank lloyd wright built on top of a 30-foot waterfall it is by far his most popular building and best exemplifies his philosophy of organic architecture the harmonious union of art and nature located in the mountains of southwestern pennsylvania roughly 70 miles outside of pittsburgh It's listed among Smithsonian's life list of 28 places to visit before you die. The house was meant to complement its site while still competing with the drama of the falls and their endless sounds of crashing water. The power of the falls is always felt, not visually, but through sound, as the breaking water is constantly heard throughout the entire house.
4: 30 million people must have seen falling water by now. But it was a very simple expression of... uh a man's love for that particular site, the music of the waterfall. And never before had I been given concrete and steel to build a building with. You see, when steel comes into your hand, you can pull on the building and you have what's called a cantilever. Now the cantilever is this principle of tension. Your arm reaching out from your body and held by the sinews and muscles above, moving as you wish to move it as a cantilever. The trunk, of course, is a support that's in compression. But you can suspend from the end of the cantilever fabrications of any kind. So the new principle in architecture is this principle of the interior support, the extended slab, the arm, and the falling. Screen hanging to the slab. And that's the structural synthesis of my own building. And it is essentially organic in itself. And that is falling water in principle. And the grammar of falling water, now we call the grammar of the building, the shapely means you use to to, uh, make the building manifest. Falling water is an
3: architectural marvel but it has a few major flaws. Its skylights leak, the waterfall promotes mold growth, and the builders didn't use enough reinforcing steel to support the first floor's concrete skeleton. Despite its flaws, falling water is a masterful work of art. The considerations that Wright would take into account before crafting such a milestone of architecture went far beyond the basic materials used to build a house.
4: The nature of the site, like falling water, And next, the nature of the materials you have to use and the people you're going to work for and what it is they want to live in. And you have to have an eye on what they want to live for, too. I can't see any future in anything but an individual type of architecture. If the Declaration of Independence in America means anything and democratic life means anything, that's practically what it means. You see, I was at in my uh, country home, lying on the bench. The Dutch door half closed below. Great curiosity existed. It was during a tragedy at Taliesin, and people came in droves to look around, and two women ranged up on a Sunday morning, looked all around into the living room, and old and odd, and how... uh, beautiful this was and how that was so interesting Then a pause. Finally one of them said to the other well I wonder if I'd like living in a place like this as much as I'd like living in a regular home. Well now that's the way it all began. They were, these things were strange. They weren't accustomed. They were accustomed to stuffiness and uh, a messy environment and things never going together, making a kind of commotion, and they didn't understand it and didn't want to understand it. They put it on like some old garment when they built a house, without thinking. But now comes the uh, necessity for not just taste, but some knowledge. You have to know now, a little better and a little further along, what constitutes good proportion, harmony in building, great and beautiful environment. And it's a culture and a growth in itself of the soul. So the people who live in these advanced houses, I think that's what we can call them, must have a greater feeling for life. They must be more in themselves than the people who haven't arrived at that stage in their development. And once they have arrived there, they are liberated, they feel, and they see so much more than they never saw before. They see the uh, liniments of nature, and as Blake would put it, uh, the liniments of gratified desire.
3: The original estimated cost for building Falling Water was $35,000, but the total was closer to 155000 Approximately $2.7 adjusted for inflation. The cost of restoring the house in 2001 was 11.5 million. Frank Lloyd Wright believed that his architecture and design had the ability to fundamentally change the lives of the people who lived in his buildings, and eventually would change the way society lived in harmony with nature. Good architecture
4: creates good behavior. I believe now people are going to know what constitutes good architecture, good environment, and, of course, good living has to go with it good dressing, too, good conduct, also. All these good things are dependent, more or less, one on the other and are assisting one another, more or less, because you wouldn't dress in a loud and vulgar way in a quiet and beautiful room, nor would you be so satisfied with tawdry jazz, perhaps in a room that was beautifully conceived and had a lovely atmosphere and belonged where it was, it would seem more than ever discordant. So these things all match up as you go along and add up to something that we call culture, isn't that it? That's what culture means. Wright
3: believed that good architecture created good behavior, which would inevitably lead to a better culture. But this idea clashed with the status quo of his time, and to this day, that education creates the culture. Book smarts versus street smarts.
4: Now culture and education are two very different things as we practice them. Culture is the developing of the thing by way of itself. And education is informing, teaching, telling, pushing around the individual. So, It's only by a natural growth that you can attain culture, But you can come back from a school all filled with, with... stuffed with ideas and what we call conditioned instead of enlightened. Isn't that so? So education today doesn't mean culture. And today I think all these youngsters are educated far beyond their capacity and not cultured at all. So I say that education today is not even on speaking terms of what we should call culture. And we need culture more and education less. When we return,
3: Frank Lloyd Wright, the rugged individualist, digs deeper into the clash between culture and education, quality over quantity, and his contempt of standardization, right here on Our American Stories.
0: This is our american stories and we return to the life of frank lloyd wright and when we left off wright was making the distinction between culture and education and by the way does this still resonate today folks you bet you it does you're all nodding as you're listening to him talk here's jesse
3: Wright inspired and continues to inspire generations of young and upcoming architects through not just his works, but his ability to think and design in ways that weren't being taught in institutions of higher learning. How is originality cultivated when everyone is being taught
4: to think the same way? I think all these young people in school now are hungry for something that they don't get or they wouldn't write to me. And I think also that It's an instinct of the higher nature. You see, you're only human as you rise above the animal. Your animal self is one fundamental factor or element in your life. Then when you come into the higher things that are not animal, the things of the spirit, Then you get into this realm that we call art and you begin to look for things that are creative rather than just uh, repetitive. And I think there's where you're in the realm of culture rather than education because you can educate an animal. You've seen them do tricks, haven't you? Frank Lloyd Wright was outspoken,
3: to say the least, about his disdain for the ever-increasing collectivist mentality that was rising in American culture during his lifetime. Standardization was not compatible with architecture or any other form of art, as far as he was concerned. It was the individual, not the masses, which was the foundation for the American way of life.
4: It's got to be an individual affair. It's got to be a slow affair. It's got to be a peculiar to you affair. Now how are you going to do it with 20,000 students in a university? How are you going to do it with high schools crammed two stories, three stories high with a crowd of students? As a matter of fact, culture is not for the herd. Culture is not for the crowd. Culture is an individual thing. And that's what our forefathers Struck when they decided and when they declared. I mean that that uh, the individual is sovereign, the sovereignty of the individual. Now that means a certain premium on aloneness to start with, a certain uh, rejection of the common man as common, but insisting on his privilege to be uncommon and so that exists in every human soul today and this is the country that we live in that declares it the only one that has made it official the only one that has made it constitutional to be yourself <laughs> and we see abuses of it of course all down the line now we see, it, uh, we see ourselves all drifting back again Drifting toward the commonplace, drifting toward the common man, and you hear it asserted that uh, that was what our country meant, that the common man was free to be common. Well, he wasn't. He was free to become uncommon, and that's the freedom that we ought to tote and talk about, and we should present with all our strength this drift toward equalitarianism, which is commonness raised to the end. Wright was raging
3: against the machine age, the era roughly between 1880 and 1945 that ran parallel with his own time on Earth. Life was getting faster. The steam engine was replaced with internal combustion and electric motors, mass production of high-volume goods on assembly lines, including the automobile, were making life easier for average people. Radio and phonograph technology was making the world smaller as communication was being broadcast and distributed to the masses. Fast, long-distance travel by car, train, and aircraft was now attainable for nearly everyone. But this all came at a cost, according to Frank Lloyd Wright. The machine age could be used to create a new kind of beauty and higher way of living, or it could be exploited to create a cookie-cutter culture that would become detrimental
4: to the individual. It's taken me all these years to learn that standardization is no bar to beauty. And the standardization can be controlled and the machine used as a tool to develop a beauty greater and more beneficent, more pervading, more all-embracing than anything we ever knew before. So that's what this age means. That's what the machine age should mean. But it's being exploited and uh, turned inside out, turned over wrong side up by all these opportunists and this desire for material uh, benefits and success. Same old story, there's nothing new in it. It's just as it always has been. It's only when it is conquered and we're, we're aware of this greater, and find our way of life, that we're truly Americans in the sense that we have a new country and a new ideal, and we have a new, therefore, bound to have a new architecture. A new architecture
3: is what Frank Lloyd Wright brought to the world. His buildings stand as monuments to rugged individualism at a time when standardization and mass production were the name of the game. Nothing represented standardization in architecture to write more than what he saw in big cities across the country and the world. In his mind, the future was in country living.
4: Well, the city, of course, is a a thing of the past. There was a time during the Middle Ages when it was the only source of culture. There was no way of acquiring this thing we call culture except by direct contact. It isn't so now. It hasn't been so for many years. It wasn't even so when this country was founded, but of course it was more so. But gradually, all the, the development of all these sciences, the gifts of science to us, have made this crowding unnecessary. And it always was, after the Middle Ages, it always was a detriment. Never was any real asset to humanity. And especially when the emphasis now comes on the individual and the growth of the individual unit and the whole process of civilization dependent upon the quality of that individual especially. We've got to give over this uh, crowd. We've got to get out of the crowd. We've got to be all the crowd there is ourselves in proportion as we desire it.
3: Getting out of the crowd, standing out as an individual, pushing back against standardization, much like our founding fathers, these are the qualities that Wright wanted for himself and for our country. When we return, the life and philosophies of Frank Lloyd Wright continue with architecture as the mother of all art, here on Our American Stories. Everything we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Sign up for the newsletter, follow us on Facebook, or browse through our archives to hear us whenever and wherever you want, absolutely free. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.
0: Our American Stories, and we conclude the story of Frank Lloyd Wright, and what a joy, what a pleasure it is to hear from the man himself, the greatest architect in American history, I think there's no doubt, and it's as if he's speaking to us, as if he's here right now, and by the way, he's talking about things we're still talking about right now, aren't we? And that's what made Frank Lloyd Wright Frank Lloyd Wright. Well, we've heard him talk about art, architecture, culture, society, education, life itself Here again is Jesse
3: with the last part of this story. American filmmaker and historian Ken Burns saw Frank Lloyd Wright as the greatest American architect of all time. In his documentary, In the Life of Wright, Burns profiled his personality, egocentric and somewhat aggrandizing, and his talent, which was varied, original, and distinctive in this fascinating view of the architect who was an artist of the new.
5: He is the prototypical American in every way. He's got a second act, which people have been saying we don't have. He, he has a third act. He's also the greatest American architect, without a doubt. His overweening ego, notwithstanding, that is true. The legacy of the buildings are great. This roller coaster of a personal life makes the biography so interesting. And in the end, He is asking us not just to live and like his houses the way an artist might want you to like his paintings. He's asking you to rethink what a house is and how we live. Architecture is the most important art because it's working on us all the time. And we don't choose to go to it, it's there with us all the time. It's not like the ballet or the theater or the cinema or television. It's working on us now, and he's the only person I know who every moment of his life insisted that we wake up and that he was going to provide the tangible evidence of how we might rearrange
3: our lives to live better and more organically. But living more organically, at least in Wright's mind, was incompatible with living in the city. He knew that there would always be those who would prefer the hustle of the big cities, but he was also anticipating a revolt that would occur when people awoke to the realization that there's more to life than Fifth Avenue.
4: Some of us will always want to huddle. Some of us will always want to pig pile. Some of us will let us, that'll that'll segregate the uh, sheep from the goats, so to speak. You can stay and huddle and pig pile if you want to. But when you feel yourself to be an individual and you feel this declaration of our freedom, when you get that into your system you'll want to go out somewhere where you can be as alone occasionally and be yourself as you want to be and have the benefit of nature. You see, the city now is a divorce from nature. It didn't used to be such a divorce from nature as it is now. But now it is a great divorce from nature. And there's no substitute. You see, quality there used to be a big sign on the roadsides, I used to say it, it was advertising a patent medicine, I <laughs> think. Quality knows no substitute, but nothing truer was ever said. Now quality cannot come from pig fouling and herding and traveling with the herd.
3: There was a major rift between quality and quantity that Frank Lloyd Wright saw as directly influencing American exceptionalism. He also saw art and architecture as a way to retain the fundamentals of the human spirit. It's necessary for a healthy culture.
4: Quality is not compatible with quantity. Quantity can never be quality. No matter what the quantity is, there'll always be in it the uh, rising within of quality. You see, and that is culture, and that is our country. That's what we've declared, that if you'd give this so-called common man a break equal to any other man's break, what was good in him. And the faith of democracy is that, that every man is good if he has a chance to be. He will be. Now, architecture gratifies that sense of the future, the uplift, the becoming. And of course, all art should, more or less does. But architecture primarily is the basis of that. And from it, you get your painters, and you get your sculptors, and you get your craftspeople, all desiring to make something suitable, fitting, uh, calculated to make human life happier, gadgetry is intended to make it easier, and does, (laughs) but without these other things of the spirit, these mechanical things, which we have so many of now, and so much of, that has given us a facility we don't know what to do with, all we can do now is to rush from here to there with some idea that we want to go somewhere. We want to go now. But what we get out of going isn't what's so important as it ought to be. It's statements like these that
3: led some to believe at the time that Frank Lloyd Wright was some sort of disestablishmentarianist who simply wanted nothing more than to destroy the new way of living that the machine age had brought to society. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. As Wright saw it, science wasn't the answer to the pitfalls of society, but it could be used as the means to improve our culture if used properly.
4: I think science has far outrun our capacity to take its gifts and use them with proper profit to ourselves. I think science has now reached a point where we're on the brink by way of it, and we can destroy ourselves by one false step, because science gave us things that we weren't yet ready to use. We didn't know how to use them properly. We don't know how to use speed. We don't know how to use uh, so many of the things science has given us yet. And the fact that we're crowding in cities shows it. it. Proves that we haven't learned anything, that we haven't really profited by what science has done. Science destroyed the city. Science has given us the basis for an organic architecture. It's science now that builds the building. And we call it organic. But science as a tool, not as a master.
3: Wright was both cynical and optimistic about the future as he saw it when this audio was recorded in 1956. That year, Elvis had entered the music charts for the first time with Heartbreak Hotel. Schools were desegregating. General Electric released the first alarm clock. President Eisenhower signed the Federal Aid Highway Act, creating the nation's freeway system. The first U-2 spy plane flew over the Soviet Union, the computer was invented by IBM, and the transatlantic telephone cable went online.
4: Things are always either getting better or worse. (laughs) They never (laughs) sound still. (laughs) Now, of course, I see great evidences in in architecture. While much of it and most of it is imitative and not uh, really creative still, it's better than what we used to have. Still, there is an improvement all down the line. There is a rising standard, I think, in the country. And I believe that we're on the way to a culture of our own. I think we're going to have it. And I don't think I'd be alive here today. I wouldn't have the uh, work I have at my time of life unless that was there. I think that perhaps I today am one of the best proofs you could have the fact that we're going to have it. Otherwise they'd have chucked me out long ago.
3: Frank Lloyd Wright died on April 4th, 1959, after suffering from abdominal pain and complications from intestinal surgery at 91 years of age. But he continued designing and building his works of art up until his final breath. With over 1,000 structural designs, 532 of which were completed, he left behind a legacy that has inspired and will continue to inspire artists, architects, free thinkers, and rugged individualists alike for generations to come. In a world where standardization reigns supreme, Frank Lloyd Wright bucked the trend, threw caution to the wind, and unbashedly defied the logic and opinions of everyone else around him. He was the American spirit personified and remains a testament to the potential that lies in every person who dares to leave the herd mentality behind. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
4: It isn't up to us really to do anything except what we believe in ourselves. To be ourselves is the great privilege conferred upon us now. Of course, uh, without conscience, we can't belong to a society. If we were without conscience and we had the idea of freedom that seems to activate most of these people, we'd land in jail very soon. So conscience and freedom are inalienable companions. One is because of the other, should be, and if it isn't, we're not going to be a success as a nation. And we're not going to have an architecture, we're not going to have anything. We'll crawl. We'll go back to the slam, I guess.
0: And there you have it. Great job as always, Jesse. And if you like what you heard, go to ouramericannetwork.org and hear more. And by the way, send us, if you can, your best stories. We'll put them up on air. They're not all Frank Lloyd Wright. Some of them are about you and the remarkable things and beautiful things you do in your life. OurAmericanNetwork.org Frank Lloyd Wright's story, a uniquely American story, here on Our American Stories.